Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Know Your Rights series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real. The information provided in this session is for information purposes only. It must not be relied on as legal advice. You should seek individual legal advice about your own particular circumstances. Hi, I'm Dan Cox, a broadcast journalist with the ABC based in Newcastle, Australia. I'll be your host for this part of the podcast called Know Your Rights, the Anti-Poverty Series. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real, Samaritans, Nova for Women and Children and Newcastle Poverty Action Alliance. You'll hear from three eminent Australians regarding poverty in Australia and what actions you can take to reduce poverty in our society and communities. In this episode of Know Your Rights, you'll hear from Laurie Perry. He's a Wanarua man and the CEO of the Wanarua Nation Aboriginal Corporation. It was established in 1999 and represents the Wanarua people. It focuses on nurturing the history and culture of the Wanarua nation, improving the health and education of its members, and managing investments to sustain the corporation's work. That work includes culture and heritage assessments, mapping the traditional boundaries of the Wanarua, building the family tree of the Wanarua people, and working to protect sites of great importance to the Wanarua people. Some of the projects include developing properties for teaching, healing and learning, the Wanarua Cultural Park at St Clair Aboriginal Mission, and the Morrison Collection, which are Aboriginal artefacts currently housed at the Australian Museum. The Wanarua Nation Aboriginal Corporation biobanking site near Payne's Crossing is the first biobanking site in the Hunter region, the first in the country, actually, when it comes to Aboriginal artefacts. Welcome to the series, Laurie Perry. Thank you for having me. What has been the historical experience of the people of the Wanarua Nations in terms of income? Income, work, poverty, self-determination and some of the barriers to self-determination? Well, I think if you're looking back into the time when the hunter was discovered and then you're looking at how we've evolved over time with what we're trying to achieve, it's been a long road in terms of you know power and mining development in our country and how we're looking at managing that. And also, you know, to look at um, the overall arching projects that we're trying to deliver here in terms of, you know, economic development within the community. It seems that, you know, mining has been one of the power performers in this area. Um, the Aboriginal people that are living in Wanneroo country connected historically and socially and um, we seem to be banging our heads against the wall and trying to see if we can um, generate that economic development but also restoration and rehabilitation and renewable energy type projects that we're trying to look at doing but also teaching our people uh, the basic human rights in what's happening around 
um, the Newcastle Hunter region. So I think if we plan well and cultural map well and deal with the day-to-day issues and looking at closing the gap, which the Prime Minister has announced a couple of weeks ago on hearing the voice from the Aboriginal people, we might tend to get somewhere in terms of um, uh, getting people employed in areas of Aboriginal economic development. Yeah, so that's that's a crucial part of what we're trying to achieve. Laurie, what effect has COVID-19 had on the people of the Wanarua Nation? Well, it's had a massive effect in terms of how we're dealing with it from a local point of view and also a um, personal point of view. So, you know, we're actually dealing differently now COVID's come, come about with technology. So we're now sort of meeting, you know, um, through uh, Zoom and, and everything like that and, you know, making sure that we're all uh, working together and trying to combat this issue, which I don't think is going to go away for a while even if they find a vaccine. So I think it's about education as well and trying to understand how it's affecting the Aboriginal communities uh, that are in one rural country. So, yeah, it's been a change of attitude and a change of life for a lot of Aboriginal people in the area. You mentioned there some video conferencing. How has the reliance on digital communication because of COVID impacted the Wanarua people, particularly children and, and schooling? Yeah, that's right. So it's been very, very um, interesting to see how that's playing the part. Like at the moment, we're developing a literacy and numeracy program with help from the Australian Catholic University. And I think that's one of the key components of developing since the COVID times what we're trying to do here now so we can get people to access information online and not just with literacy and numeracy, but language as well. trying to ascertain what online means now in terms of uh, trying to develop things in our country that way and outside of our country as well. And how do we make sure, because of that reliance on technology, that we don't see another structural disadvantage that drives just more inequality? That's a good question. Um, I think if you're looking out at areas of what we're trying to do here, and I like to map country and we have two jails in our country. We have a number of juvenile justice officers in our country. We have a, uh, 100 New England Helps uh, across our country as well in different areas. And how we can work together on them basis is to deliver the technology um, which is needed now. And I'm very, very keen to work with uh, the Musselbrook and the Cessnock jails on incarceration rate and reducing them that through Aboriginal economic development we're doing with our properties, trying to look at how we can engage more with the Aboriginal legal services and legal aid and and how we can get these programs into these areas. And the driver's licence is one of the most key components that I'm working on now. So, you know, we've got Aboriginal people, men and women, that, um, you know, have fines coming out of their ears up to $10,000 worth of fines. So we need to reduce them fines and create economic development by delivering outcomes across one uh, rural country and the state. So working hard with uh, the New South Wales Crown Lands Department and their new strategy and looking at different ways of engaging with uh, 
land councils that occupy in the one rural country. The driver's license is crucial for work too, Laurie. Exactly. And the figures of unemployment are unbelievable in such a powerhouse industry with mining and uh, power stations. So, you know, we've got a bit of work to do, but if we're going to close the gap together, we're going to have to, over this 10-year period, you know, it shouldn't be classed as 10 years. It should be classed as an ongoing. There shouldn't even be a, a number to closing the gap. It should be an ongoing phase of development that we just keep doing it. My idea is to get Aboriginal close the gap coordinators into the field and start working with these service providers that are engaged with Aboriginal um, organisations or non-Aboriginal organisations that engage in trying to work together to close the gap in the Newcastle Hunter region. Some of the targets in the closing the gap, the report of 2020 shows that most of them aren't being met. Life expectancy, child mortality of Indigenous people still not being met. What impact does poverty have on these outcomes? Massive. Look, it's quite simple. Look, you know, because of the incarceration rates and juvenile justice rates and and the licence issues and um, out-of-home care services, you know, why is there 10,000 Aboriginal kids in out-of-home care services which who are not living with Aboriginal families, you know? This is a catastrophic figure of, of what's really happening in this state, uh, not just in one rural country. So, you know, it's going to take a team effort to deliver these outcomes and bring back, you know, stability within the Aboriginal communities. But we can't do that on our own. We need um, everyone in this state to work with us and especially one of rural countries to reduce the figures that are terrible at the moment. And... You know, the whole idea of closing the gap, in my opinion, is to save the government money. And it costs $200,000 for a kid in juvenile justice and 300000 for a person in jail. You know, this is ridiculous. Jails are turning into private enterprises now. You know, it's a money-making business. We need to be able to build the economic infrastructure where jails are built. And we need to be able to build on that capacity so that we can generate, you know, the monitoring system within our children from the age of preschool to high school. Mm. These need to be monitored as we go through this next phase of 10 years as predicted by the Prime Minister. So we want to give the Prime Minister the voice of our country so we can integrate that into economic development for Aboriginal communities. By any measure... Australia's a wealthy nation, a wealthy place. Our GDP, you know, there's the, the economic side of our GDP and the amount of wealth we produce through our resource industries and so forth is within the top, I think the top 18, if I remember correctly, the top 18 wealthy nations in the world. And in that environment, you think that we still carry a level of poverty, which is significant, where, where people are really at well, risk of having a roof over their head. They're finding it difficult to feed their families. And the work I do now, the social work, I mean, I encounter those stories on a regular basis. People turning up to it and they haven't fed, they haven't eaten properly. Or, but I've had students come in, they haven't had enough food for lunch. You know, very, although they'll delay having a lunch so they can go home, they can have their food. They have difficulty finding transport to get to places. They have difficulty buying, buying clothes and so forth for interviews and for for job engagement. Yeah, this is this is commonplace. 
Access to justice and knowing your rights is what really matters to us. If it matters to you too, please share the Know Your Rights series on Newcastle Library's Real with your friends and rate us and review us on iTunes. Is it possible that the one target that was met in that Closing the Gap Report 2020, halving the gap for Indigenous Australians aged 20 to 24 who finish Year 12 or the equivalent, will be impacted by COVID-19? Most definitely. And that's where we need to carefully consider what's happening um, here in um, Wanderoo country in trying to determine how we can uh, work through that through that process. So, yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. What priority policies, what actions do governments need to progress to genuinely support closing the gap between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians? Well, in my opinion, there seems to be three major problems that we face as Aboriginal people. That's the Culture and Heritage Act, the Land Rights Act and the Native Title Act. It just doesn't work in this state in terms of economic development and growth within the community. And there's a number of examples on that I won't sort of go into now, but, you know, if land councils are going to develop, they're in areas that are probably have seven local government areas they have to deal with. You know, there's a backlog of claims going on. And then if the land councils receive money, what, what support do they get to be able to deliver that economic development in that area? As far as the Native Title Act, it's just, it's uh, one of the most stupidest acts I've ever read and been involved with because there's no clear outcomes and it just divides Aboriginal people across the state. As far as the Culture and Heritage Act is, it's 1974 when it was introduced. We've got the OEH you know, policies and the National Parks and Wildlife policies that we have to deal with as part of development. There's over 100 registered Aboriginal parties across the state. Now, how do you do that? How do you deliver the outcomes needed for consultation and it just brings arguments together and it slows the process down and you know if we're going to start working together we've got to start looking at these acts and start to sit down and work a way around getting through them so that everybody wins on the table. Australia's the only Commonwealth nation without a treaty or makarasa with our First Nations people. What does that say to you? I don't know. I mean, when you're looking at the Constitution at the moment and we know that it's talking about how they're looking to try and how does that in, involve everybody, especially across Australia. I mean, Australia is a big place. There's 800 different languages. Look, even Captain Cook had trouble trying to work through the process. <laughs> so, you know, 200 years later, we're still talking about it, well, what we're trying to do constitutionally. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, people need to be recognised. We are the first people from this from this country and it needs to be embedded into the constitution. But in terms of a treaty, a treaty of all the nations, in my opinion, coming together is the first part of true reconciliation between ourselves and the non-Aboriginal people that have come here. But, you know, if we're going to look at a treaty, it might be easier for the states to deliver all the treaties and then bring up the bigger picture down the track. That could be a possibility, but it's very hard to um, look at a national recognition and I personally get that. But I actually think we can achieve it by states and then looking at a national treaty for everybody. 
Laurie, it's argued that some government policies strip First Nations people of their dignity, their self-determination, their human rights, such as the introduction of the cash card in some Indigenous community. What is the lived experience of a policy like this? I mean, you know, th- things haven't worked in the past. And look, one of the major problems in, in communities is there's no development or economic development within those communities. And you have to start thinking outside the square and start mapping country, culturally mapping country properly with the communities on what exists and what can be developed in them areas. Projects in terms of smart farm projects that generate um, income or horticultural, solar, renewable energy, things like that that communities can benefit on. Horticulture, aquaculture, farming, uh, beef and cattle, farming is options that we can look at. And I think communities, if they use their land in a way that's going to benefit with government support, then that's when we start to develop economic development and start growing the country. And that's when we can also start to trade with each other. You know, we traded in this country for thousands and thousands of years. We're not trading anymore. We need to trade together again and bring our communities together again and talk in in our language together again so we can actually bring uh, a prosperous um, state and uh, Australian community together. And and that brings everyone to the table. And that would go a long way to having a standard of living that allows them to have some genuine self-determination? Exactly. And we're, you know, sick of the government telling us what who we are and what we should do, and all these acts do that. What we need to do is start to culturally map country the way that we want to culturally map country. We need to burn country the way that we want to burn country and for the government to listen to how we do these practices and start to and start to engage properly, you know, and how we can develop and deliver rural outcomes for Aboriginal people. Cultural cool burning has been happening for thousands of years, you know, it's not going to stop a catastrophic fire. Let's see what. It's going to slow it down. It's going to also give that farmer or that person that's living in the bush time to get in or stay or fight. Now, these are great options that they can, can be used by de- developing cultural cool burning into the system, which we're looking at doing now, and it's a no-brainer. Um, and we're all working together. Fire doesn't discriminate, you know. Fire brings people together of all nationalities. And the reason for that is, you know, we've got to put it out together. We've got to save this country. This country needs healing and cultural cool fire burning is the way to do that. What are the biggest fears that you're hearing from First Nations people when it comes to the pandemic and poverty, Laurie? You know, it's pretty hard when you hear about some of the communities and I'll go back to what's happening with them and why the jails are full and the juvenile justice centres are full and why it's hard to cope on the, on the outside, you know when it's possibly safer on the inside. Um, I just, you know, feel for those families that are struggling and all the time and, you know, no job, no licence, no, you know, uh, values to move forward, no hope, you know. You see Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people sitting on the streets that are homeless, you know. So to some people, they're invisible and... You know, we've got to start to uh, renegotiate the way that we do business in this state and in the Wanneroo country and how we can 
help to save homeless people. They're homeless for a reason, you know, mental health or they're struggling to connect in, in with the community and other people. And we need to find out why and how we can help them, people. So it's going to take a big effort to do that and work together as, as, as all Australians. What do you think the Australian public needs to know to make sure there is change? I think we need to have the conversation of what's really happening on the ground and start working together, start building cultural camps and start bringing corporate and government into schools and, and, and incarceration offices. Everything that deals with Aboriginal poverty is a reason for it. And let's start talking around the fire together, you know, and start healing this country. And that's the only way I see all of us working together for the one thing. And, um, you know, and that's to keep, you know, this country and build this country the way that we can all build it together. What are you pessimistic about? Uh, I don't know. I think the, the idea of what's happening, like I said before, with the culture, with the policies and the legislation that's been holding us and putting us down for so long, it needs to be uh, worked out properly. I mean, if, when you look at, you know, Kevin Rudd's speech and you look at uh, you know, Paul Keating's speech and then you look at Tony Abbott and his speech and then you look at, uh, you know, the opposition speech and then you look at Scott Morrison's speech, look, we're not getting anywhere. These are words. We need action. We need deliverables. And we need for the communities to be heard. Now, once that happens and they start listening, then we can all share stories together. But that ain't happening. So we need to be able to... I'm very pessimistic about what government's doing and how we can engage, you know, by working together as communities, as an alliance together to be able to deliver some good outcomes. All right, enough about pessimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm very, very looking forward to cultural mapping and people to understand it. I'm very much looking forward to building Aboriginal economic development through cultural trading, mapping and language and stories, and very, very keen to look at getting this online um, literacy and numeracy programs and being monitored from preschool to 18. I'm really keen to do that and build the capacity of the Aboriginal communities across the state and I think we can do that if we get support from corporate and government and communities that engage um, with Aboriginal people. Laurie Perry, thank you for speaking with us for this part of Know Your Rights. No worries, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Know Your Rights Anti-Poverty Series. Thanks to Newcastle Libraries Real, Samaritans, Nova for Women and Children and Newcastle Poverty Action Alliance. Make sure you rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. Help spread the message. Thanks for listening to the Know Your Rights series presented by Newcastle Libraries Real. We hope this has raised your awareness. This has been a Newcastle Libraries Real production. 